Awesome. Good morning. Good morning. Good to see everyone. My name is Hunter, one of the pastors here at Providence, and thank you so much for joining us here today. Glad you are here in the house of the Lord. We are beginning a brand new sermon series today called Holy Human, Restoring the Fractured Soul. And uh, this series is all about how to live as fully integrated human beings, mind, body, and spirit. And uh, I do wish Candace would come up here and preach this morning because uh, that was so good. Thank you so much for sharing. And I just want to double tap on what uh, Josh said, that uh, God speaks through his word. Uh, that is something that Juan said as well. And uh, the question is, are we listening? Are we listening to his voice? He's speaking to all of us. God is no respecter of person. So I encourage you this fall, as you go back to school, go back into work, get out of the vacation mode, um, let's get back into the word of God and recommit to it in a fresh way. Um, a couple weeks ago, I went on a trip, a boys' trip, with some guys from my community group, and we went up to Winter Park, Colorado, and we rode the Alpine Slide. Anybody ridden that before, been up there? Yeah? You're smiling from ear to ear. So fun. It's awesome. It's a good time. It's kind of a uh, Colorado bucket list item, and uh, everyone should go at least once. There's a picture of our community group, and uh, it was a great trip. It was a fun trip. Uh, until uh, my friend Hudson uh, went down the slide his second or third time around. Um, that is not a picture of Hudson, <laughs> by the way. Uh, that's a picture of a guy who looks a lot like Hudson, and I thought it was Hudson, and so I screenshot it on my phone, and now it's printed off on my desk to remember this occasion. Um, but uh, Hudson is much like his dad. He, he only knows one speed, and that's 90 or nothing, right? Like he is full steam ahead. And uh, as he was going down the slide, what happened is that he started to see these people who were walking toward him. And uh, these people were waving their arms at him and, and yelling things like, stop, stop, stop. And so Hudson rounds the corner, and he doesn't know quite what's going on. And he sees a dad with his son stopped dead in the middle of the fast lane on the Alpine slide. Uh, just for indication, he's going probably 25, 30 miles an hour. And uh, so instinctively, he pulls back on the brake and tries to stop, but he's not going to slow down in time. He knows he's about to crash into these people. And so he, he, he grabs, just out of instinct, grabbed onto the side of the slide to slow himself down. And I think, I think you know where this is going. Uh, and eventually that wasn't going to slow him down enough either. And so he just bailed and just eventually just like threw his body, flung his body off the side of the slide and uh, saved the day. His sled like narrowly tapped the cars in front of him, a true American hero. I think we should all give him a round of applause. Well done, Hudson. We love you. Your courage, your bravery. We're not without sacrifice. Uh, in fact, his sacrifice was mainly to his hands. <laughs> the dude... Poor guy. We got him aspirin and some bandages, and then he had to spend the rest of the day, like, cupping this venti ice water from Starbucks just to, like, cool the blisters on his hand. And when we got back home, he called his mother-in-law, who I think is a nurse or a doctor, and, uh, yeah, he got second-degree burns on his hands just from dipping the side of his slide. Not, not very fun. Um, I share that story because I think in many ways, uh, that story of Hudson going down the slide is kind of a picture of our spiritual lives. Uh, for so many of us, we're zooming down the runway, going 90 to nothing, all gas, no brakes. And uh, we maybe hear people around us saying, hey, you should, you should slow down. You should uh, lower your speed a little bit. Maybe we even hear the Spirit of God inside of us telling, hey, something's not right. You're going too fast. Uh, they're trying to get our attention, waving their hands, saying, stop, stop, stop. And if we don't, 
Not only are we at risk of crashing into others and hurting the people around us, but we're even at risk of doing damage to ourselves. I want to kick off our series today by examining the life of a man who simply did not know how to slow down. He was going too fast, and consequently, he failed to hear the voice of God. If you're taking notes this morning, and I hope that you are, the title of my message is, Stop, We Can't Keep Living like this. Stop. We cannot keep living like this. Uh, if you brought your Bibles with you, you can grab them or scroll in them with me to 1 Samuel chapter 15. 1 Samuel 15 is where we'll be this morning. Uh, 1 Samuel is a book in the Old Testament. There's two parts of your Bible, old and new. The old is in the front half of your Bible. And uh, 1 Samuel is just after Joshua, Judges, and Ruth, and before you get to Kings and Chronicles. And the man we're looking at today was out of touch with his inner world. He had a fractured soul, but like so many of us, he just simply didn't know it. He lived his life from a place of profound insecurity, inadequacy, selfishness, and greed. And as a result, he wreaked havoc on the people in his lives around him who mattered most because he wouldn't or couldn't slow down. The man I'm talking about, of course, is King Saul. Saul was a hugely important figure in the Old Testament. He was Israel's very first king. Uh, the Israelites lacked a ruler for so many years, almost 400 years. And uh, during this specific time, the Bible actually says that because they had no ruler, everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. Sounds a lot like our culture today. <laughs> so God raised up these figures, these judges to lead and rule over his people. Uh, now, judges weren't like the folks that we picture at Denver County Courthouse downtown, you know, in the black gowns and that sort of thing. No, these were military commanders. They uh, oversaw battalions of soldiers who would go out and fight on God's behalf. These were men and women uh, like Deborah, Barak, Gideon, and Samson. And for the most part, they were good rulers. Uh, they were God's rulers, anointed and appointed by him. But after 400 years of chaos and heartache, Israel had enough. They didn't want a judge. They wanted a king. 1 Samuel 8, 19 through 20 says, But the people refused to listen to Samuel, who was actually the final judge, by the way. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with the king to lead us to go out and before us and fight our battles. The reason they wanted a king is pretty interesting. They wanted to be like all the other countries around them. Samuel warns them, though, this accommodation will come at a cost. In fact, he calls their request for a king an evil thing, and it displeases Samuel greatly. But Yahweh tells Samuel, listen to all the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected. It is me they have rejected as their king. By asking for a human king, Israel, in effect, undermined the divine king, the cosmic king, Yahweh. Yet Yahweh, in his great mercy and kindness and goodness and wisdom, graciously gives the people exactly what they want. It's just a reminder for us that in our life, God will actually give you what you want. He respects you enough sometimes to do that. And he's able to work through that process as he appoints a man to the throne named Saul. And uh, Saul lived a fascinating life. We don't have time this morning, but if you study the chapters prior to 1 Samuel 15, uh, Saul started off quite strong. He was handsome, obedient, prudent, resilient, prophetic, 
collaborative. He got other people involved. He was favored. He was anointed by God. What's not to love? He's a great guy. But in time, he would become temperamental, defensive, disobedient, jealous, fearful, traitorous, arrogant, and ultimately murderous and even suicidal. And just as Israel rejected Yahweh as their king, Yahweh would reject Saul as his king. So we do well to ask, this man who started off so strong, what exactly was his disobedience? If you have your Bibles, you can look down with me at 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 7 through 9. It reads, And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt, and he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction, all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. But all that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. At the very beginning of 1 Samuel 15, God instructs Saul by the prophet Samuel to attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. This request to destroy everything that lives and breathes strikes us as pretty harsh and even disturbing to our modern ears. Doesn't a request like this make God capricious, vindictive, bloodthirsty, no different than all the other gods of the ancient Near East? In fact, requests like this one cause many believers to think that the God of the Old Testament is a very different God from the God of the New Testament. How could a God in Jesus who tells us to turn the other cheek be anything like this? We don't have time this morning to get into issues of theodicy and genocide. Uh, it is worth knowing who the Amalekites were. In uh, Exodus 17, just a few chapters after Israel passes the Red Sea on their journey out of Egypt to Mount Sinai, the Amalekites send a raid and they attack, they attack the children of Israel from behind. And this was an offense that God did not take lightly and one which he refused to forget. Uh, in fact, he says uh, that I will completely blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. And Saul, who knew well the story of the Amalekites, was the man who God called on to fulfill this promise. Not just to defeat them, but to destroy them, to totally wipe out any memory from them on the earth. This was to be done as an act of worship to God. This is, again, so hard for us to comprehend because we don't live in a theocracy anymore. Uh, we live in a democratic republic that's governed by the Constitution, or so I'm told. I think, I think we do that. Uh, and because we live in a very different culture, uh, we are Americans who live under the rule and reign of King Jesus, and we are to be marked by radical love, peace, and compassion. Amen. Uh, holy bands and a holy war is not something that we mess with. Uh, but we have to understand that this holy ban was part of a much larger moral infrastructure that dominated the world at that time. Um, and if we don't take time to understand the world of the Bible, we're actually in danger of imposing our world onto their world. And it doesn't get much more ethnocentric than that. Uh, Old Testament scholar and ancient Near Eastern expert John Wal Walton puts it like this. He says, just as the whole burnt offering was entirely consumed on the altar in the priesthood, so the ban mandated total destruction. 
Since the warfare was commanded by Yahweh and represented his judgment on Israel's enemies, the Israelites were on a divine mission with Yahweh as their commander. Since it was his war, not theirs, and he was the victor, the spoil belonged to him. How did Saul sin, you may ask? Saul saw the spoils and thought, hey, let's not destroy them, let's savor them. Sammy boy, why waste all these fattened heifers when we could have filet? Why have a bonfire when we could have a barbecue? Come on, we could be eating pork chops tonight, baby. Or lamb chops, they wouldn't have, they wouldn't have eaten pork. Why kill Agag? We could lead him around as a prisoner of war and be great fanfare. We'll, we'll take this trek to Gilgal and we'll sacrifice all the animals there. I'm calling my booking agency now. We'll line up all the speakers. We'll pack the place house. It's going to be amazing. But God doesn't think that's such a great idea. Because Saul had forgotten that the battle belonged to Yahweh. The spoils belonged to him, not Saul. As a result, Yahweh was deeply displeased. Verse 10 reads, the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, furious, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And when it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. I just want to pause for a second. Do you know how much time it takes to build a monument? Like he had one job and one job only. That was to destroy all the people, all the cattle, and yet he's like, yeah, 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 but this like bronze statue over here, like it's going to look really good if we put it down here. Like he, he took the time out of his schedule to do that. Pretty amazing. And it was told he, he built a monument for himself. He turned and passed and went down to Gilgal. Verse 13, and Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And I love this part. Samuel said, what then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, they have brought them, not me, they have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord, not my God, but your God. Then Samuel said to Saul, stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, speak. What a passage. God has anointed Saul as king, and now he rejects him as ruler over Israel. Can you imagine, again, put yourself in the shoes of these people, just the turmoil the heartache, the embarrassment that this caused, not just for Saul, but also for Samuel, and not just for Samuel, but for God. This verb for regret is actually a pretty common. Um, in fact, there's a synagogue not too far from our apartment called uh, Brit Mechanim, uh, which basically means house of comfort. Uh, but this specific form of regret appears only one other time in the Old Testament with Yahweh as the speaker. Any guesses where that may be? A little Bible trivia, you could shout it out. Where does God say, I regret? What's that? Yes, the flood account. Well done. Someone did sword drill. I love it. Give you your Awana badge after this. It says in Genesis chapter 6, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. And the Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. 
Just as God once regretted that he made humanity, now he regrets that he made Saul king. In 1 Samuel 15, just as in Genesis 6, the profound emotionality of God is on full display. Yahweh feels, Yahweh grieves, Yahweh hurts, and Yahweh feels regret. Why is God so upset with Saul? Didn't he just make a mistake? Well, verse 10 tells us exactly what he was frustrated by. It says, Saul has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. He turned back, meaning at first Saul was going the right way. Again, this is a cautionary tale for our lives this morning, my friends. Saul was gifted. He possessed natural aptitude and leadership ability. He was literally touched by God and said he had a change of heart in chapter 10 through a genuine uh, conversion experience and, and life in the spirit. He even fellowshiped in the company of other godly committed believers. He was in a CG. He was surrounded by prophets. But none of this was a guarantee of a mature spirituality because Saul lacked the one thing that God wanted more than anything else, and that was a surrendered heart. As a result, Samuel has a decree. Verse 17 says, And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, the Lord has also rejected you from being king. Saul's basic concern is in verse 19. Saul, why didn't you just obey? Why didn't you just listen to the voice of the Lord? And because Saul couldn't or wouldn't listen, in time, he's self-deceived, self-justifying, building monuments to himself in his own honor, triangulating, deflecting, blaming, motivated more by fear of man than fear of God, simply because he wouldn't slow down and listen to God's voice. This is a haunting and humbling passage for us, my friends, because when we don't stop to hear the voice of God, we begin to presume that we know best. And in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, hearing is the same thing as obeying. To hear is to obey, and to obey is to hear. Parents of little ones know this. When you tell your kids, hey, listen up, you don't just want their ears, you want their heart. You want them to listen, but you really want them to do what you say. So thank God for Samuel, someone who could be the adult in the room. Someone who actually loved Saul enough to confront him in his sin and call him to the carpet. 
We all need a Samuel in our life because if we stop listening to God's voice, we will begin presuming that we know what's best. About four years ago, my wife, Kara, confronted me about what it was like to live on the other side of me. Sometime, it wasn't funny at the time. <laughs> I can laugh now, but uh, sometime during our first year of marriage, Kara kindly informed me that living with me was like walking on eggshells. I was easily irritable, defensive, prone to anger, utterly unpredictable, one minute very loving and sweet, and the next defensive, get out of my face. And much like Saul, I think, this is not an excuse, but I, I think I felt small in my own eyes. And I wanted others around me to feel the same. After about four months of this, Kara was utterly exhausted and much to uh, her credit, she became my Samuel. She courageously confronted me in my sin, in my arrogance, in my defensiveness, and let me know, hey, you've got to stop. This is not the way to live. And December 2019 marked this beginning of exploring all things related to emotional and mental health. I began looking beneath the surface of my life and exploring my own perfectionism, my latent narcissism, my defensiveness, my sense of inadequacy, and more. This is when I was actually first exposed to the work of Steve Cuss and Pete Scazzaro, and they, along with many others, have been faithful mentors on this journey in our marriage and my own emotional development. And I am still very much a work in progress, but those who know me, like really know me from four years ago, know that I am a different man because she had the courage to confront me in my sin. What about you? Is there someone in your life who has permission to tell you what it's like to live on the other side of you? What about you? Is there someone in your life who you need to confront in their sin, in their presumption, in their arrogance? Because once we stop listening to God's voice, we are in danger of thinking that we actually know what's best for our life. And that is a scary place to be. Of course, if you're going to confront, speak the truth in love. But let me tell you this, a harsh diagnosis that is true is kinder than a vague diagnosis that does nothing to cure your experience. Speak the truth in love. And thank God that Saul had Samuel to confront him. And Samuel's diagnosis for Saul was fourfold. Number one, you did not obey. Number two, obedience is better than sacrifice. Number three, your sin is no different than witchcraft and idolatry. And since you have rejected Yahweh, Yahweh has rejected you. A brief word on each. Number one, you did not obey. Uh, we've been clear on this point so far, but it's worth noting that uh, Samuel actually, or Saul, I should say, actually took time to go down to Gilgal. This was basically his power base. Uh, this is like the president going back to Washington, D.C. This is the place where his coronation service occurred, and this is where uh, his supporters and his loyalists were. And he went down there to, to strengthen um, his own position, and he wanted to put on a religious spectacle for God. But God wanted wholehearted obedience, not a show of spiritual sacrifice. Consequently, obedience is better than sacrifice. In Psalm 51, David says, You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. 
You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite spirit you will not despise. Consequently, Saul's sin was no different than witchcraft and idolatry. Can we let that sink in? Being arrogant is the same as messing with a Ouija board. Wow. We live in a a culture today where divination is not common practice, but trust me, the occult is alive and well in our city. This is a bit of a pastoral soapbox, but if you'll indulge me for a second, I need to warn you, do not mess with the new age. Do not mess with crystals or voodoo dolls or fortune tellers or tarot cards or palm readers or horror movies or anything and everything that dabbles in the demonic. Because if we could rip back the spiritual curtain in this sanctuary this morning, there is a fight going on for your soul. Heaven and hell, life and death, angels and demons, and we are all becoming more or less a child of heaven or a child of hell, and we are in a full-on fight for our soul. But just as wicked as witchcraft and divination are, presumption and pride is every bit as demonic. Why? Because when I think I know best, I have put my power and authority in something other than God. I am looking to an object outside of God to run and control and lead my life. And that is a very scary place to be. We have effectively practiced witchcraft because we are looking outside of the only Lord, the only ruler, the only king, the only authority who should have the right to tell us how to live. Therefore, Samuel says, since you rejected Yahweh, Yahweh, has rejected you. My friends, if we cannot stop, if we can't slow down to hear God's voice, we will be in danger of living like Saul, as if we know what's best and we actually have what it takes to lead our lives. God help us. I want to ask you this morning, do you have Saul's disease? Do you have the condition of presumption and arrogance? Verses 24 through 26 says, Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. After being confronted in his sin, Saul seems to confess, but it's hard to know exactly how sincere his contrition really was. Uh, The Hebrew text seems to suggest that Saul was after a quid pro quo form of spirituality. Hey, Samuel, if you'll scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. If you'll just forgive me for this whole Amalekite business, then I'll go with you and I'll worship to the Lord your God. Just forgive me and we can forget about it. And I've wondered, after being given so many chances by God time and time again, why does Saul seemingly still not fully repent? Why does it feel like he's still just kind of grasping for power and control? So much so that in the next verse, verse 27, he literally grabs the hem of uh, Samuel's garment and tears it off. He's grasping for more, like Adam and Eve in the garden, reaching for the forbidden fruit. He doesn't know how to simply accept the lot that he's been given in life. 
I was getting lunch a couple weeks ago with Medina, who is a current cross-purpose leader, and uh, we're going through the Gospel of Matthew together as part of the discipleship program at cross-purpose, and she said a line that I will not soon forget. She said, to heal, you must first know that you hurt. How good is that? To heal, you must first know that you hurt. Why wasn't Saul healed from his sickness of pride and presumption? I honestly think it's because Saul didn't think he was sick. He didn't think he had a problem. And I'm afraid that may be the same for some of us in the room this morning. In uh, his book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, Pete Scazzaro lists out 10 signs of emotional unhealth. And uh, I don't own a stethoscope or a white coat or lab gloves, but uh, I want to give you 10 signs today that could serve as a symptom checkup for your soul care and health. I don't know if y'all remember uh, Jeff Foxworthy. This is the uh, country stand-up comedian. He always told those jokes like, you might be a redneck if... You know what I'm talking about? Well, you might be emotionally unhealthy if, all right? So uh, these won't be as funny as Jeff Foxworthy, but just buckle up. Uh, You might be emotionally unhealthy if you use God to run from God. Talking to the church people today. All of us, man, my goodness. Ignore anger, uh, what uh, Scazzaro calls difficult emotions. Uh, Anger, sadness, and fear. You die to the wrong things. You deny the impact of the past on the present. And in church, this sounds like, oh, praise God, glory, glory, hallelujah. I'm a new creation in Christ Jesus. It's like, yeah, Jesus may be in your heart, but grandpa's in your bones. You divide life into secular and sacred compartments. You're more busy doing for God instead of simply being with God. You spiritualize away conflict You cover over brokenness, weakness, and failure. You live without limits, and you judge other people's spiritual journey. What a list. I'll invite the music team up the stage, but as they're coming quietly, I just want to take a minute just to read through that list and let the Spirit of God speak to you. Because if we're too busy to hear the voice of God, we'll begin thinking that we're actually in control of our lives. Take a minute just to look at that list. If uh, even two or three of those symptoms seem to kind of register in your heart, can I ask you, please slow down. Please pay attention. Please don't ignore the warning lights on the dashboard of your soul. Over the next eight weeks, we're going to dive deep into the waters of mental and emotional health. And uh, We've got some really great guests coming. We have Steve Cuss coming on the 27th. Kelly Gray, licensed therapist and counselor here in the Denver area, is coming the weekend after Labor Day, September 10th. And uh, we're going to explore some important topics. We're going to talk about becoming our authentic self, breaking the power of the past, letting go of power and control, embracing grief and loss. And uh, I hope you'll join us. I hope you'll dive deep into the waters of emotional spirituality and health. I I hope you'll buy the book. I hope you'll take the quiz. There's a QR code on the screen behind me. We have some free copies of both the book and the assessment on the welcome table in the lobby. But I want to pause and just challenge us this morning to take a deep breath 
and do the plunge. Let's dive deep into these waters together. And I, I won't pretend for a moment like this journey actually isn't really painful. Uh, trust me, I know. <laughs> this is like learning a whole new way to be human, and it can be really scary to do it. But I want to encourage you that you're not alone. <laughs> you're in community. You have others who are going along this path and this journey together with you. And I just want to challenge you that uh, you can either pay the price of pain now or the price of pain later. You can pay the price of doing your own personal work, going on an inner journey of healing, or you can pay the price of wreaking havoc and doing damage to others and yourself in the process later on down the road. Wisdom says, pick the first. Wherever you are on that list of symptoms, though, I have good news for you. I said earlier that I'm a doctor, but really I'm not. <laughs> I'm a patient. There's only one great physician who can heal our souls. There is only one who can save us, who can restore us from our fractured state. Why? Because Jesus is the better Samuel and the perfect Saul. Unlike Samuel, he doesn't just confront us in our sin, he actually comforts us in our brokenness. And unlike Saul, he doesn't just show obedience by making a sacrifice, he actually became the sacrifice. He wasn't just willing to sacrifice animals. He was willing to become a burnt offering on the cross in our place so that there would be a forever monument, a forever memorial to the only God who can make right our relationship with him. If you are in Christ today, I want to let you know that you don't have to fear rejection. You have already been redeemed. The question is, though, are you being restored? If you are in Christ, you have been redeemed. And if you are in Christ, you can be restored, my friends. If you feel yourself going too fast, feel the voice of God telling you, hey, whoa, 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 we can't, you need to stop. We can't keep living like this. Listen to that voice, because if we don't, if we don't listen to the voice of God, we'll begin to think that we are in control. The prayer team can make their way down front and if you want someone to pray with you this morning, they would be more than happy to do so. If you need to tell someone, hey, I'm, I'm not winning in this area. Uh, this is not going good for me right now. I'm moving too fast. I feel my life spinning out of control. These people would love, love, love to pray with you this morning. Zero shame, zero judgment. This is one of the safest places in the entire city of Denver to come and say, hey, I'm not okay. <laughs> it's okay to say that here. Uh, wherever you are on that journey, uh, confessing your brokenness and pride may be the best thing that you could do today. But whether you're coming down front, whether you're sitting in your chair, I want all of us to reflect quietly on this question on the screen. How can I slow down to hear the voice of God? Uh, the music team can begin playing softly behind me in just a few minutes. They'll invite us to stand and worship. Let's spend time with God. Don't rush. We're not in a hurry. Let's hear from the voice of God. How can I slow down to hear the voice of God? <laughs>